Lord, we ask you to bless this time as we look at your word. Help us to see what you would want us to see from this and guide and lead us and give us an understanding. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Jeremiah chapter 22, we're continuing with Jeremiah's prophecies against uh, various kings. So starting at verse 13. Woe unto him that builds his house by unrighteousness and his chambers by wrong, that uses his neighbor's service without wages and gives him not for his work, that says, I will build me a wide house and large chambers and cuts him out windows, and it is chiseled with cedar and painted with vermilion. Shall you reign because you close yourself in cedar? Did not your fathers eat and drink and do ju judgment and justice? And then it was well with him. He judged the cause of the poor and the needy. Then it was well with him. Was not this to know me, says the Lord? But your eyes and your heart are not but for your covetousness and for to shed innocent blood, for oppression and for violence to do it. Therefore, thus saith the Lord concerning Jehoiakim, the son of jo Josiah, king of Judah, they shall not lament you saying ah my brother or ah sister they shall not lament him saying ah lord or ah his glory they sh he shall be buried with the burial of an ass drawn and cast forth beyond the city uh, the gates of Jerusalem so here is the section of condemnation for Jehoiakim uh, one of the kings of Judah he's one of the sons of uh, Josiah, and he says, Woe to you that builds a house by unrighteousness and his chambers with wrong. So he's talking about the king and the people at that time were being abusive to everybody. And it's kind of interesting because we look at what's going on in Jerusalem then, and we look at how things are going on in our world and how people mistreat others and uh, want to t you know, take advantage of people. And I've seen it and heard of it all over the place where you hire somebody and then find a million things wrong with them and decide not to pay them anything. And this is what they're basically saying. They're building it on unrighteousness uh, and, un, you know, and not being right to people. And God does not take that kind of activity and ignore it. And this is what was going on in Jerusalem. They were abusing each other. They were worshiping idols. They were cheating one another and harming one another. And it says, you have been doing this. You built your house and chambers for wrong. You use your neighbor's service without wages and give him not for his work. So you're getting somebody, you're hiring people and then not paying them. And this was a big deal back in, in that time. People would be working and you got paid every day. And you needed that pay just to buy your food for that particular day because you didn't have money in the bank. They, they pretty much lived paid it check to paycheck like most of us do. And they had this habit of deciding not to pay them or promising to pay them tomorrow for, you know, I'll pay you Tuesday for a hamburger today <laughs> uh, type deal. You know, we'll pay you, we'll pay you later. I don't have the money right now. I, I promise I'll pay you and that tomorrow never comes for these people. And this is what was going on in Jerusalem. People were being, laborers were being abused by these people that were not paying them. He said, I will build a wide house with large chambers and cut out windows and chisel or tie a panel it with cedar and paint it with vermilion. So he's not making just a small house. He's making big houses. 
and this is what the king was doing. He was made a huge palace, and, and he covered it with cedar paneling, and he painted it vermilion or red, a very bright red, and probably very pretty. I don't know if I'd want to live in a house that had paint, red painted walls, but apparently that was a big deal for, the, for this king to have red painted walls. Uh, I think it would be too harsh, too harsh to live in, but, but I've also seen very strange colored you know, buildings, you know, I saw one that had black paint on, on the walls. Yeah, it's got to be a depressing color to, to paint and live in that kind of thing. It was hard to, hard to just walk into. But that all that was there, and he says, you're building these big, big houses, large chambers, you've cut out windows, and you're tiling it, and you're painting it with red. You're trying to show off, in other words. You've got more than you need. And I kind of think about, you know, here in America, you know, it wasn't so long ago that your houses were fairly small. If you buy the old track houses that were built at the end of World War II, you know, you had two bedrooms, one bath, and it was all in, you know, 10,000 feet, 12,000 feet, you know, square feet. Now, if you had that much, you can't even get an apartment with that little space, much less uh, a house. And why? because we want to show off how much money we have and how nice a place we can get. And this is what he's telling the king. You're, you've got so much there. You've got more than you need. And worse yet, you're not paying the workers for doing it. And the king's getting away with it just because he's king. You're doing it because I say so. And he's not being judged. And he's not holding others accountable for this. And this is Jehoiakim that's doing this uh, going on. He says, shall you reign because you clothe yourself, uh, clothed yourself in with cedar? Did your father eat and drink and do just judgment? Uh, and not your father, did not your father eat and drink and do just judgment and justice? And then it was all well with him. So he's going back to Josiah's reign. Josiah, remember, was the good king. He actually held off God's judgment by turning and turning to the right but God says everything is so bad it's going to fall on your on your children but he says didn't Josiah have a good reign and he did everything the way I wanted and this is something that is very important and it's hard for us David said you know why do the heathen you know rage and you know why do they why do why are they looking like they're getting away with everything we obey God they don't and they get rich and we barely get by but in the long run, God brings judgment. And they probably aren't happy either. And we've talked about this you know, many times. You know, oftentimes people will look at the rich and the famous and the stars and the actors and the singers and the athletes and go, and look at all the stuff they have. They have everything that they'd ever want. They've got houses and servants and cars and, and all of that. And we think that they're happy. And they put on a front that they're happy. And then the next thing we read is they're in rehabilitation for alcoholism and drug use or they've committed suicide and all these things. And we're going, why would they ever do that? They had everything, but without God, stuff will never make you happy. And the problem, even for us as Christians, is sometimes we think, well, if I just had all that stuff, I'd be happier than I am, am now. If you're not happy with God and what he gives you, you won't be happy with all the stuff in the world. And that is what Sol uh, Solomon told us in Ecclesiastes. He goes, I've got everything and nothing makes me happy because he had forgotten God. 
And here he's saying, your, your father ate, drank, had, had great prosperity, and he did what was right. And you're trying to do, get all this prosperity without doing what's right. And he says, verse 16, for he judged the cause of the poor and the needy. Then it was well with him. Was not this to know me, says the Lord. He goes, Josiah wanted to know me. And by knowing me, he did what was right. And I think this is important for us as Christians is to realize when God lives in us, we know him. And then he comes out and we do what he wants us to do, which means treating people fairly, you know, giving them an honest day's wage, uh, being kind to them, helping out when, when we can, and lifting them up. And God says, this is where the blessing really is. And if nothing else, it blesses for eternity, which is a great blessing. But it also tends to bless here on earth because we reap what we sow. When we sow righteousness, we will reap righteousness in general. And this is what he's telling him. He goes, he, he took care of the poor. He took care of the needy and everything. And he goes, then was it well with him? You know, just a question. You know, didn't, you, didn't he have things working for him? But verse 17 says, but, this is important because it's changing, your eyes and your heart are not but for your covetousness and for to shed innocent blood and for oppression and for violence to do it. Now, this is a harsh statement against Jehoiakim. You have nothing but covetousness in your heart. What is covetousness? Wanting what everybody else has. And unfortunately, when a king gets a covetous heart, you're in trouble because there's not much to hold back a king, especially in those days. The king wants it, he takes it. Even though it wasn't God's way and what he wanted, here is Jehoiakim, just if he wants it, he takes it. I want it, I want it, I want it now, and I'm going to take it from you, is his attitude. And it says, and you shed blood of the innocents, and you oppress and do violence. And when the king is starting that and laying that out, then everybody else who's in power thinks they can do it. And this is what we see in every, every nation that we can look at. If the leaders go evil, the people go evil. If the leaders generally are good, then the people generally follow, follow good. Now, there's always going to be good and evil at all, at all levels. But this is true that whatever the leaders do and believe is how those underneath them uh, behave. Uh, having worked in restaurants for 15 years, I can walk into a restaurant and, and within just a few minutes, I can tell you what the manager's like by watching their employees. You know, do, does the manager care about, about the customers will reflect, be reflected in the employees. And that's true of any business. You can walk into any business and say, oh, these people don't care about the customers. The, the, the owner or the manager doesn't care. Or these people all seem to care. The manager must really care about, or the owner must really care about the, man, about the, employee, about the customers. And he says, you are out there to shed blood of innocent blood and oppress and do violence. And we've talked about this all through this book so far. It's all about the evil of Jerusalem and the violence of Jerusalem and the idolatry of Jerusalem. And then verse 18, Therefore, thus saith the Lord concerning Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, they shall not lament for him, saying, Ah, my brother, or an ah, sister, 
They shall not lament for him, saying, Ah, Lord, or Ah, his glory. In other words, when, he, when Jehoiakim dies, nobody was going to be sorry. Now, that's kind of a really sad state of affairs. If nobody is sad that somebody dies, there's a real bad problem with the way they live their life. In here, Jeremiah is telling them, Jehoiakim, when you die, there is not going to be anybody who is sad about your death. And that gives us a, a picture of how evil Jehoiakim is in the eyes of the people. You know, shedding innocent blood, taking, not paying wages, and so bad that when he was to pass away, he's going, nobody's going to care that you're dead. Nobody's going to, there, there is nobody who's going to lament over you. Not, not as why, you know, if nobody's going to do it, that means not his wives, not his children, not his parents, if they're still alive. Nobody is going to lament for him. And that is a real sad picture of this, this individual. I've known people who everybody will lament for, and I know some people that nobody will, you know, lament very much for. And it's very important. And in his case, we know it's because of his evil, his evil desires. But usually if somebody's not going to be lamenting, it's because they haven't reached out to touch people and to bless them in any way, shape, or form. And then I've seen people who have had hundreds and thousands of people show up uh, at a memorial or, or funeral service. And I'm not talking about the famous people. I'm talking about just everyday people who manage to touch lives. So he said, and he shall be buried with the burial of an ass drawn and cast forth beyond the gates of Jerusalem. In other words, he was not going to be buried with any ceremony. He was just going to be taken out of the city and basically thrown to the ground. You know, taken out like an unclean donkey. Just dragged, drug out of the city and thrown into a pit somewhere with no, with no care. Now, really sad thing is this is the king that they're talking about. The, the king of the nation, and they're going to say, you're going to have a funeral that nobody cares about. No, you know, they're going to take him out, no on display for the people to come by and see, no, no burial, no celebration, just taken out and thrown aside. Of course, the, the no lamenting of him as well. Not, nobody cares that this king dies. And this is a sad place to be when nobody from the kingdom is going to care that you have made it made it to that point. And this is how bad a king he is in his people's eyes. And you know, usually even when a bad king or a bad president or primary, uh, you know, uh, prime minister dies, people, somebody somewhere cares and gives them some kind of lamenting, but he's going to get nothing. No, 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 no peace, no, no looking at. After 11 years, his ruin was so evil that nobody, you know, they were actually probably cheering that he was gone, much le you know, like nobody lamenting him, according to Jeremiah. Now, there might have been a few friends or somebody that you know, was sorry to see him go, but overall, he was somebody after 11-year reign that they're like, you know, long live the king. Oh, boy, the king is gone. You know, singing, the, the king is dead. <laughs> so this is the problem with, with him, and mostly because of his covetousness and all of this stuff that, that Jeremiah was talking about. Verse 20, go up to Lebanon and cry and lift up your voice in Bashan and cry for the passages. For all your lovers are destroyed. I spoke unto you in, the, in your prosperity, but you said, I will not hear. 
This has been your manner from your youth that you obeyed not my voice. The wind shall eat up all your pastors and your lovers shall go into captivity. Surely then shall you be ashamed and confounded for all your weakness. O inhabitant of Lebanon that makes your nest in the cedars, how gracious shall you, shall you be when paid pangs come upon you. The pain is of, as of a woman in travail. As I live, says the Lord, though Coniah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were the signet upon my right hand, yet I would pluck you from thence. And I will give you into the hand of them that seek your life, and into the hand of them whose face you fear, even into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and into the hand of the Chaldeans. I will cast you out and your mother that bore you into another country where you were not born, and there you shall die. So I'm going to stop there for a moment. So now he continues his, his speech with him. And he says, go to Lebanon and cry. That would be the, go to the north, which is another, another country, and cry. And let, lift up your voice in Bashan. Bashan is to the northeast. It's between basically Galilee and Babylon, that whole area, a little, little more south than, than that. But it is a, the northern portion of the land of Judah that Moses gave two and a half tribes. They wanted to live in Bashan because it had lots of green grass, lots of places for their herds to to eat, and they did not want to go into the promised land and said, we would just like to stay in Bashan. Bashan was famous for its cattle. Their cattle were large and good to eat, good and strong. They were really the choice place. If you were going to buy cattle in that day, you wanted a cow or a bull from Bashan. And so he says, cry, cry in Lebanon, lift up your voice or cry in Bashan. Cry from the passages, for all your lovers are destroyed. And what he's meaning by his lovers were those that they would put their trust in, their gods and the nations that they were hoping to, to uh, rescue them. And God's using this picture of spiritual adultery. I'm supposed to be your God, and you're not turning to me. You're turning to all the other gods. You're turning to Egypt. You're turning to Assyria. And all of them are going to fail you, God says. And he says, all of your lovers are going to be destroyed. The gods are going to be destroyed that they worship, the nations that they come to help. And we're going to, and in the history, they went, to, they went to Egypt. They asked Egypt to help. And it gained them a little bit, of, little bit of pause because Nebuchadnezzar broke the siege that he had on Jerusalem and went out, destroyed Egypt, and came back. They went to Assyria and said, come and help us. Assyria came in, Babylon went out, destroyed Assyria, and came, came back. Everybody they asked for help, they would pay for help for, got destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar, just as God, just as God told them would happen when he, when he forecast with Jeremiah. He goes, all of those that you are looking for help that aren't me are going to fail, and those nations are going to be destroyed. And histor historically, we find that that's exactly what happened. All these nations that came to help Israel were destroyed. Now, whether they were destroyed just because they were not strong enough or because God turned his hand to them is basically the same thing. God turned his hand against those who tried to help Israel. 
And this is the thing that is so important. If we are disobedient to God, especially when we know we're being disobedient, anybody or anything that tries to help us will suffer in the process because God will turn his hand against them because he has turned his hand against us. And I've seen this over and over where people have been living in sin and everything goes wrong. I've been there. I've done that myself when I was fighting with God for, for the period of six years that I've mentioned on several occasions. Everything went wrong. Everything. It didn't matter how good it looked or how well planned it was. Nothing worked because God's hand was against it. And God's hand was against Jerusalem and all of the people they tried to get to help them were destroyed. And Babylon kept getting stronger out of this because it destroyed all the other nations that were any chance of being able to defend against them were wiped out because they tried to help Jerusalem uh, and Nebuchadnezzar would go out and, kill and destroy them and basically take, take them over for all practical purposes. So this is what God's saying. He says, all those that are going to help you are going to be destroyed. He goes, I spoke to you in your prosperity, but you said, I will not hear. God speaks in prosperity to people and starts saying, judgment is coming. You're making the wrong decisions. And way too often people go, la, 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 I've got all I want. I'm not going to listen to these bad, bad, bad rumors, these bad statements. And we see all the prophets have that, you know, have that problem. You've got Hosea preaching to the northern kingdom that the judgment is coming, and they're going, hey, everything is good. We've, we've got all this prosperity. Everything's going good. Jonah preached to Nineveh. Nineveh was at the height of its power at that time, and, and they repented, but they could have said, you know, what is this crazy Israelite prophet talking about? But they responded. But more, than not, more often than not, these people would ignore these prophets when everything was going good. And then when everything was going bad, all they'd do is blame God for all the bad things that were happening to them without repentance in most cases. And we're even seeing that in our day. People see everything that's coming and they either totally ignore it or they're going, why would God do this to us? And it's like, well, don't you recognize all the sin around you and you know, that you're probably participating in? And we've said this so many times. I look at all that's going on, the, the famines, the droughts, the, the wars, the, the bad weather, and I open my Bible and see that that's what God's done all through history and say God is bringing judgment and what are people doing? Well, it's, you know, uh, global warming or, or climate change, I guess is the new word for it, you know. Uh, or you guys just haven't evolved, you know. There, there's no such thing as sin anyway, so there's no problem with all the stuff that's going on. We're going to ignore that God calls it a sin and then wonder why judgment falls. And this is something that is very important. And here's what he's saying to them. He says, I spoke to you when everything was going good and you said, I will not hear. And again, we've mentioned this before. This word for hear in the Hebrew is to hear and to obey. So in other words, I hear you, but I'm not going to, I choose not to obey is what they're telling, what they're telling him. Uh, this has been your manner from your youth that you obeyed not my voice. So he's telling the king, from your earliest days, you did not listen to what I said. Your father was a good king, righteous king, but you did not follow. 
Now, does that mean he could never have repented? No, but his, he was setting the stage that he was not going to repent. And this particular king never did repent. He was one of the worst kings that they had as he's walking Israel down the primrose path to, to destruction. And, you know, he says, you did not listen for it. The wind shall eat up all your pastors or your shepherds. Now, this is kind of an interesting statement. Even those that are speaking for God and trying to take care of them are having trouble. And, you know, there are times when you feel like, you know, we are just trying to teach and nobody's paying attention. And I kind of see that in America. You know, nobody seems to pay attention to the fact that God says something is wrong and part of the problem is we've got Christian, so-called Christian pastors who aren't speaking the word of God and aren't calling sin a sin and saying, well, it's okay. We've got all kinds of pastors out there that say homosexuality is okay, that living in fornication is okay. I've not heard too many people say adultery is okay, but you know, they're, they're probably going to get there. But, they, but they're all saying fornication is okay and you know, that homosexuality is okay. Uh, they're not far from you know, being able to say, well, take what you want. It doesn't really matter. You know, and we see this over and over. They're afraid to say anything that can make a stand for God. They've been beaten back by the wind. They have things that they want to do. Some of them don't want to lose, you know, from their perspective, a cushy job where they're in a, in a church making lots of money and all they got to do is speak nice things on Sunday morning and that's about all they're expected to do. You, know, you speak... You know, speak uplifting, glorifying, you know, make people happy as they come in and go out and never say that there's sin out there and never say that God has standards and keep drawing a check. And this is a bad place for them, for them to be. This happens in dictatorships in China and in Russia, especially China now still, because you have a state church where the state pays the pastors and the pastors have to say what they say. You know, heaven help them if they wanted to preach God's word. Because then they say, okay, you don't, get your, you don't get your check and you no longer have your church anymore. In Hitler's Germany, it was the same thing with them. If you were a, especially Lutheran, because it was their, their pastors, if you were a Lutheran pastor, you were paid by the state and you had to agree with what the state said. And what Hitler was saying and doing had to be agreed with or you would be taken from your church and lose your very high paying job at that time. Those guys made a lot of money for their day. And... But all they had to do was compromise God's word and agree with the state. And this is what he's saying here. Your pastors are going to be eaten up by the, by the wind. And your lovers shall go into captivity. Again, you're, all those that are helping you. You're, so talking about Assyria and Egypt primarily were the ones that, they, that tried to help them. They went into captivity. They were conquered. Surely then shall you be ashamed and confounded for all your wickedness. And he says... You should, with all of this stuff happening, get to a place where you are ashamed of what is going on. And this is the whole purpose. When God sends judgments on people, the judgment is designed to draw the people back to God. And yet, what usually happens is that... Uh, people start blaming God for all the bad that happens to them. So then people will then go and say, why would God do this? And look at all the bad that's happened and, and, and happening. And they blame God for the bad instead of blaming themselves for, for turning away from God. When we get to 
the book of Revelation, the seven years of tribulation and the 21 plagues that God sends on the world are designed for the same purpose, to draw people to God because of their disobedience. And what does it do for most of them? It drives them away from God because they are looking at it. They are so self-centered that anything bad that happens to them is somebody else's fault and not their own fault. And we see that all the time. Look at all these bad things happening to me and, you know, these people and this person and that person. And you always blame somebody else for your problems. And it's becoming worse and worse with every generation that we have. Uh, that, you know, it's always been there. Don't get me wrong. It's always been there, but it seems to be getting much worse with these generations. This, you know, it's more accepted. It's more generally, I'm owed everything. I deserve what I, you know, I deserve everything. Uh, if I don't get what I want, something's wrong. And it's wrong with the system. It's wrong with the, the people. You know, I don't really care that I'm disobeying every law that God gives me because I don't recognize God's laws. I don't recognize right and wrong. All I know is it's really bad. And again, it's, it's more accepted on one side. It's to, to blame others rather than to take your own, you know. In my day, I was kind of at the end of the people's lives that said, you, you know, if you don't do things right, you're going to be punished. And it's down to the place where if you punish your kids or, or, or your employees, you're almost in trouble for doing so. Uh, we're at a place where you have an employee who isn't doing anything for their job and you fire them, you may be, you may be fined for firing that, that employee. You know, because that is where things are gone so far down the road is there's no recognition of responsibility. And this is what he's talking about here is that you're not I'm bringing all these things and you, you know, surely then you should be ashamed and confounded or, or awed at your wickedness but in reality, they never did. They never did get to where they recognized that they were the cause. And you hear this kind of stuff all the time. It's not my fault because I didn't know the laws, I didn't know the consequences, I didn't, I didn't think it was wrong, uh, and all the different arguments that you hear from people in today's world. This is what God's saying to Jehoiakim at this point. He goes, all the stuff I'm bringing to you and you are not recognizing, this should bring you to, to your knees and to have you call out to me. And he says, you have not done it. And I think this is important for us in our day, especially as the Christian church, as we see the judgment falling on our country, are we falling to our knees and saying, God, we repent for our part of it as well. Because the church is not doing a great job at being able to hold back the, the tide. All right. Now, we're still holding back the tide, don't get me wrong, but it is greater tide coming in than, than is being held back, and we're losing ground with each one because we're losing more and more churches and more and more denominations and more and more pastors are turning away from God's doctrine. But can you imagine what this world is going to be like when the rapture happens and there are no Christians to tell people what, what's going on is wrong? how bad things will get and how quick they will turn to the evil. Because there'll be nobody saying, huh, sorry, you know, this is, this is wrong. Homosexuality is turning and becoming more and more popular in our country, but there's still a group of strong Christians saying it's a sin. There's still people saying that living together in fornication is a sin. There's still a group of people saying that 
adultery is sin instead of having free marriages like every you know like the world's wanting to do where it doesn't matter where there's a group of people in Christianity saying that God says that they own stuff it's theirs don't steal it don't try to don't try to take it and we're putting up a wall and it's crumbling fast because the church is getting tired getting getting worn out and like I said more and more churches and denominations are turning away from the standard of God because they're tired of being attacked because of it. I'm looking forward to the attacks because I know that I'm gonna, I wanna hold firm with what God says and that's gonna make me unpopular in the long run and possibly lose me a job out at the prison or anywhere else because you know, eventually I'm gonna say that something's wrong and somebody's gonna be offended. It's just gonna happen. And who knows what the consequence will be uh, you'll get put into some kind of specialized sensitivity training. A lot of businesses have that. You know, you say the wrong thing to the wrong person, and you go into a class to be taught how to be sensitive to them. You know, oh yeah. Yep. Um, my son was telling me about one of his classes that he went to that was teaching him that white males are all privileged, and you should be sorry that you guys are, have such privileged position, and you should not be upset if anybody else gets promoted above you. You know, that's what's being taught to our people, especially white males, you know, above all, uh, because we are the privileged of the privileged. Uh, uh, that's funny, you guys are the minority. <laughs> minority. We're becoming the minority, we're in the minority in all the way around, yeah. and yet we're the privileged one. We have all the power and all the say according to them. So it's a very interesting world that we're in. Uh, now, because I have not been promoted because I was a white male and they needed a woman to be promoted. Uh, I've, it's happened to me more than once. It's all for show. It is. Most of it's for show. And it's like, this is what's going on in the business world right now. The business world is being forced to get into politics and gender identity and all these things because a very vocal minority is saying, if you don't, we're going to make your life miserable. But, you know, to me, the majority should be saying, I'm not going to go to your business if you do this stuff. There are many businesses that I will not go and participate with because of how far they've gone into homosexuality and, and transgenderism and all this stuff. I'm going, nope, won't go there, won't go there. So my choices are getting much smaller as time goes on. But this is where we're at. Are we going to make stands that say, I'm going to st stand for God and not support all these people that are going the wrong direction. And it's starting to happen. There are businesses recognizing that they're going too far and losing the majority of the people. And I hope that it continues. But the question is, does God's judgment bring people to their knees and bring them to repentance? And God says it should but historically we find out that it doesn't in more cases than not. Verse 23 says, O inhabitant of Lebanon that makes your nest in the cedars, how gracious shall you be when the pangs come upon you as the, the, pang, the pain as of a woman in travail. So it's talking about Lebanon. You make your nests in the cedars, the, you know, the, up in the tall trees. You're above all the, all the fray, all the problems going on. How will you feel Lebanon when all this stuff comes upon you suddenly? And this is really what happens when God brings judgment. 
He speaks softly for a long time while everything's going good. And then almost like overnight, things change and finances fall apart and weather starts getting bad and droughts happen. And I look at, look at our, our own country and how far we have fallen in such a quick way, financially, prestige-wise, weather-wise, all the stuff that's happened that's turned our country upside down because the labor pains <laughs> of tribulation have started. And yes, the weather is something that God has used all through the scripture. So I believe that most of our weather issues in this world right now are a result of you know, trying to wake us up for, our, for the sins that have been going on. And people are ignoring it. They're writing it off to man-made weather, weather changes. It's all man's fault. Yes, it is man's fault, but not for the reason that you think it is. And it's common. It's what God has done. Droughts, famines, pestilences, weather, you know, all kinds of bad storms, earthquakes, all these things that happen because of sin are exactly what we're seeing. And exactly what Jesus said would happen in the end days. Earthquakes in diverse places. You know, I read just the other day about another earthquake in a place that has never seen an earthquake you know, in hundreds of years, and they got a major earthquake that hit them. Uh, and we, we hear about earthquakes on the East Coast that hardly ever see earthquakes, and we're seeing big earthquakes hit them. We're seeing hurricanes and typhoons that are bigger than anything we've seen in, in recent years. Why? I think it's because God is judging our nation. We're having storms that are going, uh, once in a century uh, storms that keep hitting year after year <laughs> uh, because of this. And then we're watching droughts. I was reading about all the lakes around the world that are drying up right now because we don't have enough rain coming in because of the droughts that are out there. And it's a worldwide drought. Why? God is bringing judgment on this world because of the sin that this world is living in and the fact that they won't turn and repent. I think if any nation was to find a way to turn and repent, they would be so blessed that everybody else would be looking at them and saying, What's, why do you have all the rain? Why are your crops growing? Why are... Then they'll blame them for it all happening in this place. They would blame them for all the bad that's still happening to them, but uh, this is the problem out there. People won't recognize that God is the one bringing this stuff in their, into their case. And didn't do it in Jerusalem either during this period of time. Then he says in verse 24, As I live, says the Lord, though Coniah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were the signet on my right hand, yet would I pluck you away from me. Coniah is Jehoi another name for Jehoiachin, which is the son of Jehoiakim. All right. He goes, Even though Coniah were a signet on my, on, my, on my hand. And remember, a signet is the ring that you would use to press into your, into your wax, but you've got a symbol saying, this is the official statement from the king. So it was, it was a very fancy ring that would you, you sealed your letter and you put your wax on it and you put the signet ring into it to say, this is my signature kind of thing on the outside of it. This proves that what's inside is what I put in there. So he says, even if... Chin or Kanaya were the sigmat, yet would I take him off my hand from, from, my, from my hand. It basically means I'm throwing it away. I'm, it's worthless. You know, my signet ring is worthless. I'm just getting rid of it. 
what a statement against Jehoiachin. All right, Jehoiachin, Jehoiakim, your son is not going to not going to rule, you know, not going to be respected either. And verse 25 says, And I will give you into their hand, into the hand of them that seek your life, and into the hand them of them whose face you fear, even into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and into the hand of the Chaldeans. So he says, you were wanting to be delivered from Nebuchadnezzar. You're afraid of him. You keep trying to pray to your other gods and, and call these other nations in to help you. I am going to deliver you into their hands. And this is quite a statement. They're sitting here trying to defy God. Because Jeremiah has told them over and over again, if you just surrender and obey God, you can keep your country. You'll be the vassal. You'll have to pay the taxes to, to Nebuchadnezzar, but you get to keep your country. And they keep disobeying what they're told to do. And this is something that's so hard. How many times have each one of us, at some point in our life, tried to fight God? And God says, do something or do this. And we're going, no way, no how am I going to do that? Because it doesn't sound like it's good for me. And, you know, we forget Romans 8, 28, that all things work together for good. And then we get there and we're going to go fight God instead of surrender and do things his way. And sometimes it's a very, it can be as simple as God wanting us to tithe and go, God, I don't have enough money to tithe. I'm not doing it. Uh, God saying, I want you to go witness. God, I'm not going to do that. I'm afraid to talk to people. And, you know, whatever it might be, and, God, and we know that God tells us to do it, and we just say, nope, no how, no way. This is what's going on in this case that God is saying, I'm going to deliver you. You want to be delivered from Nebuchadnezzar? You're afraid of Nebuchadnezzar? If you had just done what I had said, you would have been okay. Now I'm going to deliver you into his hands. And one of the things that meant, if you went into the Nebuchadnezzar, was not nice to the royalty, he would usually strip them, put hooks in their noses, and then march them back to, back to Babylon. And they were used to riding in horses and chariots, so marching and walking hundreds of miles was not good for those kings. And it was brutal. He beat them. When he got there, he abused them. Oftentimes would take their, and poke their eyes out, cut their tongues out, uh, and then, then decide to kill them. You know, so he's saying, this is what's you, what you're looking at. You're going to be all these abuses that's going to happen to you. And you're trying to do everything but. So they had great reason to fear Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar would come into lands and he would take all the people out of that land, but a very small handful of the poor, and he'd move them all over his kingdom. 120 provinces all over the place, he'd take all their people and scatter them. Then he'd take people in those places and move them into the new land that he had just conquered. Why? Well, because you wouldn't want to defend, your, defend it because it's not your land, so you didn't have to worry about you rebelling against him. And you lived next to neighbors who you didn't know how to speak to them because they were all from 120 different places in the, in the nation, so you couldn't even combine to fight if you wanted to. So he had a great way to keep his kingdom, you know, kingdom without having to defend it. He'd just move everybody around and make it so they didn't want to defend or couldn't defend even if they wanted to. And why do I want to defend? It's not my homeland. It's not, I want to go back to my homeland, which was hundreds and thousands of miles away. And here I am in this place. Why do I want to fight for this place? You know, nothing else. I want to run back to my, you know, escape back to my home. And then maybe I'd be willing to fight. 
So this is what the Israelites faced, this whole transporting of it, the, the abuse of the, of the kings and the royalty. And we saw, if you remember, Nebuchadnezzar took many of the princes and he put them into the school. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were put into the school to learn to be uh, advisors to the king and moved up, you know, in their, in their case, they moved up in the ranks and didn't, didn't bend to what Nebuchadnezzar wanted, uh, but followed God and honored God. But that's what happened to many places. He would take the best of their leaders, put them in school. If they modified and did well, then, then they stayed in there. Otherwise, they were executed. And so this is what they were looking at. We don't, we don't want to get taken out of the country. We don't want to be abused. We don't want to be taken into, into captivity. We're going to rebel. And they did not listen to Jeremiah saying, just obey God and be a vassal. Honor God. Honor, honor their position. Verse 26. And I will cast you out and your mother that bore you into another country where you were not born, and there you shall die. So he's talking primarily to the king, but most of, most of the royal, royal people. And going, you're going to be taken into another nation and you're not coming back home and remember they've been already told they're going to go into captivity for 70 years so these people that are probably older than about 20 or so they have no chance of coming home and even if you're down at 10 years old you're not likely to come home and there weren't a lot of people that made it back to to the place when they came back and but in Ezra and Nehemiah they do tell us that some of the older people that came back when they rebuilt the temple they cried at the temple that was built. They're going, it is nothing compared to Solomon's temple. What little they could remember of it. All right. Uh, so he says, your mother and you are going to go into captivity and you will not come back. You're going to die in captivity. And we find that 70 years later, when they were allowed to return, so many people were so satisfied with their new life after 70 years that they decided not to return back to Israel. They had a hard time getting enough people to return back to Israel to really start the nation. And then nobody wanted to live in Jerusalem because it had been totally destroyed and dismantled. And they had to have a lottery where one out of every 10 people were forced to go live in the capital of the country. Now, how would you like that? You know, you're, you're happy wherever you're at and all of a sudden you get chosen to move. You know, uh, all right, you and your family now get to go to Jerusalem. We know that there's nothing there but rocks and you get to work hard to build a home, but you're going to go live in Jerusalem because we have to have people living in the capital. And that's how bad people had gotten. They did not care at all for their homeland because they, for many of them, they didn't know it was their homeland. They had been born in, the, born in captivity and they had, the, Israel was not their home. They did not look at it as their home at that time. And it was hard to get people to come back. Verse 27, But to the land thereof, they, their desire to return, there shall they not return. This is the man, Kaniah. Is this man, Kaniah, a despised, broken idol? Is he a vessel where, wherein there is no pleasure? Wherefore they cast out he and his seed, and are cast into the land which they know not. O earth, 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 hear the word of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord, write you this man childless, a man that shall not prosper in his day, for a man 
no, for no man of his seed shall prosper, sitting upon the throne of David and ruling any more in Judah. So here is his last thing. They're going to go to a land where they will desire to return, but they will not return. So the ones who go out want to come back home because that is their home. That's where they were born. That is where they had lived. They want to go back. They're not going to get to go back. The ones that were born in these other countries are not going to want to go back because that was not their home. They grew up someplace else. And so they're not going to want to go back. And then he says, and this is Kaniah or Jehoiachin, is he a despised and broken idol? Right? He is trying to make himself God or, and, and direct everybody, and he is just a broken down idol. And everything he's doing is not going to work. And Jehoiachin does not get to rule very long, less than a year, uh, before he rebels. And he goes into captivity. Nebuchadnezzar takes him before he destroys Jerusalem, takes him and puts him into captivity. And he is going to put uh, his uncle Zedekiah into power. All right? And Zedekiah is just going to run, rule for a three, few years before he rebels and goes into captivity. So, and then in verse 29, he says, O earth, 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 hear the word of the Lord. And we've, we've noted this before. When God says something three times, he's trying to get attention. Isaiah says that the angels around the throne saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Really emphasizing the holiness. Here God is saying, Earth, I'm calling you to pay attention. Earth, 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 pay attention. This is serious. I want to get your attention. And he's repeating it so much time. And it says, Earth, hear the word of the Lord. Now in this case, is he speaking literally to the ground or is he speaking to men who are made out of earth, probably the latter. But he could be talking to earth, you know, earth in general because Paul tells us that all of creation groans for the day that God redeems this world. When man, when Adam and Eve fell in sin, they were not the only ones judged. The entire earth was judged. Thorns grew up. The animals became violent and, and, and aggressive and started eating each other. We had bad weather. Everything changed drastically because of their sin. So it could very much be God saying, Earth, I'm calling you to pay attention. I'm calling you Earth. And it could be that he's talking literally just to human beings which were created out of the Earth and trying to get their attention. I can go either way with it. It doesn't really matter. But the Earth is waiting for, the whole world, all of nature is waiting for the redemption of God. When Jesus comes and reigns for a thousand years in the millennial kingdom, he's going to bring peace to, the, peace to this world that has never been seen. The animals will be back to the way they're supposed to be. And it tells us that the child can play in the, you know, in the asp nest and can play with animals that, that we cannot understand. The, the lion and the lamb can lay together. All these different things. And you know, there won't be the attack of nature. The weather will be perfect weather. Uh, everything will grow the way it's supposed to, and people will generally be nice to each other, mostly because God's going to make them be nice to each other. But it'll be a great time to be alive. We as Christians will rule with Christ during that period of time. And the, at the end of the thousand years, Satan will be released. 
to tempt people to rebel against God. Why? Because the last big lie that Satan has for us is if everything was just perfect, we'd have no problems. If we didn't have temptation, if we didn't have anything bad going on, then we would be good people. God's going to give us a thousand years of basically perfection and just to prove that that lie is a lie. Doesn't matter how good things are, man will still sin. Why? Because man is a sinner. And we said this so many times, and, I, and it's not original with me. We sin because we are sinners. All right? We are not sinners because we sin. We are sinners at the heart of who we are. At the core of our being, we desire to do wrong without Christ. And everybody will do what's wrong. If you've ever dealt with any young child and you tell them, no, don't touch something, what's the first thing they do when they get a chance? They go out to touch it. And they know that they're doing wrong because if you watch them, they're looking to see if they're being watched. And they're kind of looking around the corner and, you know, and crawl over and, I mean, literally at the crawling stage, crawl over and do what you just told them not to do. And because they're looking around to see if they're being watched, you know that they know that they're doing wrong. Our sin nature wants to do what is wrong. And even as adults, we get to, we will justify why we're doing it. Well, God, you know, I really needed this money, so that's why I stole it from, the, from this person's house. It was there, and I took it because I really needed it. God, I really, you know, my spouse doesn't love me anymore, doesn't like me anymore, and that's why I went out and had an affair, because they just didn't, they have not treated me nice for, for months, years, whatever. And we'll excuse it. And God is saying, I don't accept excuses. But it is our sin nature that wants to do what is wrong. And we fight it all the time. And Paul even said, I do the things I don't want to do, and I don't do the things that I, that I want to do. Oh, woe is me. And we all know that that's a true statement. We keep, you know, whether we do it or not, we are tempted severely sometimes to do the wrong things. And then how many times do we actually give in to those temptations? You know, and maybe we pass nine times, but that tenth time we fail. You know, and all you need is every tenth time to fail, and you're, you're going to be in real big trouble. We need to be careful and follow God because he is out there saying, pay attention. Pay attention to what I'm saying. Verse 30 says, Thus saith the Lord, Write you this man childless, a man that shall not prosper in his days. For no man of his seed shall prosper according uh, sitting upon the throne of David and ruling any more in Judah. Jehoiachin did not rule in Jerusalem for, for less than a year. His children did not, if he had any, did not sit on the throne. His uncle took over the, the kingdom uh, by rule by the rule of Nebuchadnezzar and Jehoiachin died his children if he had any did not did not survive and the sad thing about this is disobedience from a father harms the children and I've seen this over and over again where somebody will be really disobedient before God and watch their children suffer you know even if it's a simple suffering of losing their job you know, that makes the family suffer. And that's a simple one. But I have seen people lose their jobs, get sick, and have, their, have kids die and, and all of that, all because of the disobedience of the parents. 
And this is why it's so serious when, you know, when a leader does not obey God, those under them suffer. Whether it's a pastor, a, a father, a governor, a president, whoever it might be, if they are disobedient before God, whatever is under them will, will suffer for that disobedience as well. That is a sad place to be, and this is why we're told in James, many of you not, ought not to be teachers, for the judgment is greater for the teacher. And that would even go for all leaders. Many of you shouldn't be leaders because the judgment for the leader is worse. Why? Because everybody under you is affected by your decisions. If they're righteous decisions, they will be rewarded for your obedience. If they're unrighteous decisions, they will be having to suffer because of including the righteous that are under you. They will suffer because God brings judgment on the leader, which affects everybody underneath. And that can be the business, it can be the country, it can be a county, it can be a city, whatever the leaders are that are not following God, bring judgment upon the entire nation. And that's where we are with America, as our government is making more and more bad decisions and ungodly decisions, we are facing more and more judgment, just as Jerusalem did, more and more judgment for the leaders' disobedience to God. And people are going, why? Why, why am I suffering? Well, look at all the decisions being made. Look at all the ungodly decisions being made and then wonder why all this stuff is happening. We need to be praying for our country. We need to be on our knees. There have been so many bad decisions from this last election and many of the states and many of the, many of the places have made some very bad decisions that are against God. And God will not let those decisions go unpunished. And we need to be very much in prayer that God will bring revival before destruction and also be aware that because of the judgments that are going to fall even the righteous will suffer because of what's happening and some of it is because the righteous did not in our country vote according to what God says and this is a sad thing this is why I said all through the election cycle look at the candidates look at the the ballot initiatives, open your Bible and vote according to what God would stand for. Can't tell you who, they were, who to vote for and what to do, but go compare the scriptures and make those things. So if our country survives for two more years and we have another election, then we need to do the same thing during that election. Open up our Bibles, open up their, where they're at and say, I'm going to vote for what God, who stands closest to God. And sometimes that's hard because many of these politicians don't stand for God you know, completely. Some of them are not bad. Some of them are terrible. Some of them are a mix. And we have to be able to say, this is what I'm going to stand for. Because we are the only thing keeping this country from totally falling apart as Christians. Standing for God and saying, no, we cannot go this far. And being able to express that God has rules. And that there aren't the situation as we're being told that there is no absolute truth. God is absolute truth. And we need to stand on what he says in spite of where the world is going with all of this. It brought the end of, Jer of, end of Jerusalem in Jeremiah's day. It brought the end of Rome. It brought the end of Greece. It brought the end of, end of, of Babylon. Egypt, you name, the, you name the nation. Overall, they all failed because they disobeyed God's rules. And God came to a point where he said, enough is enough, judgment comes. Very quickly going to come for them in Jerusalem.
and probably very quickly going to come on America and the rest of the world. And this is why I think we're at the end days, because I don't see any world, any nation that's godly to take the place of, of the chain of godly nations that have been, been in existence. So I think we're at the end day. Without a great revival, we are at the end, because there's no place where the immorality and the sin does not abound. And we're going to see God bringing judgment on the whole world. And I believe we're very close to the rapture. We're very close to the seven years of tribulation. We're very close to Jesus returning for the, for the millennial kingdom. All hinges on how far this world drops. And unfortunately, I think we're awfully close, and I don't see much hope. Now, I could be wrong, obviously. God can do a revival, and I've mentioned this many times, that every single revival that there's been a great revival, everybody in that day was saying, there's no hope. We've gone down so far, there's no hope of revival. You would have seen that every time in, in Judges, when they're going, we're falling so far down, and all these bad things are happening. There's no hope for, for revival. And God brings revival. There's still a chance of revival. I pray for revival. I don't have a hope for revival, but, I, because, but God is greater and sovereign, and, and sovereign. I'm going to pray for revival. And if he wants to bring revival, praise God. I'll be part of that revival. My grandkids can live a life where, they're, where there's some form of godliness. And then it'll all start all over again. And people being driven down into darkness and into judgment. And eventually that judgment will not be brought back by revival. God will say, I've had enough. The judgment is coming. Are we there yet? I don't know. I don't know. It sure looks like it because people are doing what's right in their own eyes. They're calling good evil and evil evil good. And all the stuff that God said would be signs of the end days. We're seeing earthquakes that happen in places, in diverse places. We're seeing bad weather in all kinds of strange places. Everything that he says is going to happen in the end days seems to be happening. But that does not mean he can't step in and bring revival if people will just repent. But we need to get prepared. The signs of the times are everywhere. You know, we look around, and even the world is saying, how much more evil can this world take? You know, not even just Christians, but the, the world is starting, and you hear it every once in a while. Things are really getting bad. How much more can we take? Their, their conclusion is that man's the problem, and yes, man is the problem. But their conclusion is that we need to get rid of man. There are too many people on this world. I was just reading an article this week that, that said that you know, we, we have 600 billion or whatever the number of people on this world is, and they go, and the world can only handle half a million people. We've got way too many people. We've got to get rid of people. And that's their answer. Again, they're blaming the wrong thing. And yes, man is the problem. The sin of man is the problem. But their answer is not the right answer. The answer is repentance and turning to God and living according to the way God wants us to live. Not, you know, kill off, kill off uh, all but a very small handful of people. And that's a sad, that's their attitude. And all of that comes from the whole idea of accepting evolution and no, no right and no wrong. And, you know, so if we get rid of man, then everything's going to be perfect. You know, they don't understand that man has a sin nature and will never be perfect because that, they don't understand God's truth. Lord, we ask you to guide and lead us. Lord, help us to pray for revival. Help us prepare our hearts that if you do not bring revival, that we still follow you in all that happens. Help us to be salt and light to the world, which will irritate them, but 
hopefully lift them into revival. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Listening friends, where will you be when you die? We ask this question of a lot of people oftentimes, and the biggest answer we'll get is, I hope I will be in heaven. If hope is your answer, you don't know God, and this is a problem. We all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The wages of the sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. If you do not know for sure that you're going to go into heaven, please today make your decision to follow him. It is simply just ask him, Lord, I am a sinner. Please come into my life and save me and make him your Lord. If you said that prayer, let us know so that we can send you a new believers packet. You can contact us at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or even pastor at chloridebaptistchurch.com. Or you can just send us a regular letter at Chloride Baptist Church, P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona, 86431. Thank you very much for listening and have a wonderful day.